invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 21, and we'll uh, be picking it up in verse 27 through verse 36, and uh, Paul is now in Jerusalem, having uh, completed his third missionary journey, and uh, we are about to to find out that he's going to uh, be arrested and put in chains, and this is... uh, Continuing with the story of what's happening to him in the capital city of Israel. So let me begin reading in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 27. And since I'm reading the inspired word of God, which is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path, uh, please give careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander from the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! And may God bless the reading of his word. So Paul has come to Jerusalem and he's been informed that there are a lot of Christian Jews who have heard rumors about him which were not factual, but uh, rumors where he was speaking against the people, the law, and the temple. And so they talk him into or propose a plan and talk him into participating with four Jewish brothers who were consummating a Nazarite vow, and that he would pay their expenses and be cleansed with them and and kind to sponsor the conclusion of their vow. And he agreed to do that. So in verse 27, when we pick this up, the seven days which are set out for the days of purification, and then the vow would be consummated at the end of these seven days are about to, to be over. And as he... As he's approaching that day, the Jews hear of him being in the city, and obviously it's gonna, it's gonna erupt and and go south very quickly. One of the things we learn from this is that the Lord in His infinite wisdom has ordained that His church must live in enemy territory. Sheep must live where bloodthirsty wolves run rampant. We survive and we thrive as a testimony to His grace and His power. But while we are here on this earth, we are to bear witness to Christ and continue the work of making disciples for the glory of God. And though the church is often attacked and assaulted, Christ has promised to build His church. But that doesn't mean that all Christians will be protected from persecution. So what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul is now going to begin a phase of persecution. 
So he has gone to the city. The Spirit of God had laid this on his heart to go to Jerusalem. He's been warned multiple times that bonds and afflictions await him once he gets there, but he's willing to lay down his life for Christ and the Gospel. So he goes on and now he's being arrested. And he's going to be beaten. They want to kill him. But the grace of God is going to prevent that from taking place. So what we read in verse 27 again is that he's in Jerusalem. The seven days were almost over. That was the days of the purification that he had to participate in to be a sponsor for these four Jewish brothers. And it says that the Jews from Asia upon seeing Him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on Him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place, that is the temple. And besides, He has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So notice that the uh, the opposition is coming from Jews from Asia. Now they've probably traveled to Jerusalem because of the Feast of of Pentecost that Paul wanted to uh, make it to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. But the opposition is not coming from the Christian Jews, but from these Jews from Asia. These would be unbelieving Jews. They are not peaceful protesters. They are stirring up the crowd, verse 27, to lay hands on Paul. So they're not peaceful protesters, but religious zealots who started stirring up the crowd for violence against Paul based on the so-called threat that they perceived that he was to their religious establishment. They're kind of like the Jewish Antifa of their day. Now notice again, they were from Asia. Now the capital of Asia was Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. These Jews are probably from Ephesus. They know Paul. They've heard Paul teach in the city. In the school of Tyrannus. They were probably there. They probably debated with him. So they they were familiar with Paul. So now they travel to Jerusalem for the feast. Paul is there for the feast. So they all see him, and obviously they are greatly disturbed by his presence there. So the response of the crowd in verse 27 is that these uh, Asian Jews stir up the crowd and they laid hands on on Paul. So they're going to uh, start this process of beating him and they really want to put him to death. But, uh, so this is, this becomes violent very quickly. Uh, they are, they're out to kill him. So that's not good at all. The reason for that are the false accusations that are given to us in verse 28. The first one is that they're crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is a man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. So he's out preaching against our Jewish heritage. He's preaching against our law. He's preaching against the temple. He's preaching against us. That's the first accusation. So in their mind, Paul was public enemy number one. And this is uh, essentially the same false witness that is born against Stephen in Acts 6. If you go back and read Acts 6, it's the exact same accusations that they did against Stephen. And they ended up stoning Stephen outside the city. So let's examine these three charges within this one first major charge. He preaches to everyone everywhere. Well, that's an exaggeration. That's not true. If you take it literally at least. I mean, Paul went throughout the Roman Empire, but he didn't preach to everyone everywhere in the Roman Empire. So they're exaggerating. False accusations always sound better when you embellish them a whole bunch. You know, we do this in 
marital spouts, don't we? Well, you always say that, or you never do this, you know, and we just, we suddenly just exaggerate, which is not good. That's what they're doing. So, the next part of it is that he's preaching to everyone everywhere against us. He doesn't like us. He's against us. He hates us. And yet, Paul loved his fellow Jewish countrymen. He longed for their salvation. Every time he went into a new city, he always went to the synagogue first and preached to the Jews. Romans 9 and Romans 10 talk about his heart, his compassion to see them saved. He's not preaching against them. He's preaching to them that they might be saved. So this is not accurate either. They attribute to him hateful motives, but he has loving motives. Then they say he preaches against the law. Now Paul clearly taught that the law cannot save you. Moses cannot save you. Circumcision cannot save you. That the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't appear that he ever taught the Jews that they must immediately forsake their Jewish heritage. But rather to see Christ as the end of the law for righteousness. That Christ fulfills all the types. That Christ alone can give you the righteousness that can save you. The law can't save you at all. He did preach that. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by the works of the law. He's very clear on that. But they thought he was preaching against the law when really he's preaching about how the law is fulfilled in Christ. It's a difference. So that's a misrepresentation. And then they said he's preaching against the temple. Now Jesus taught that his body was the new covenant temple in John 2. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church is the spiritual temple of the new covenant. The temple has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All that the temple represents, the animal sacrifices, the holy of holies, all of that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We never need to go back to that again. The veil of the temple into the Holy of Holies was ripped when Christ died from top to bottom as if saying, this is no more. This is in the past. This is in the shadows. We're moving to the substance of Christ now. But the Jewish Christians were free to participate in some of those customs assuming they saw Christ there. Animal sacrifices are not for atonement anymore. The blood of Christ was shed once and for all time to pay the penalty for our sins. But Paul wasn't going around saying destroy the temple. Jesus prophesied that it would be destroyed within that generation and that came true in 70 A.D. But Paul wasn't out trying to tear down or somehow attack the temple. So that's a misrepresentation. And then the second major accusation, false accusation that they bring against him is at the end of verse 28. And this one really stirred up their animosity. It says, and besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now again, these Asian Jews are from Ephesus. Trophimus is from Ephesus. They knew Trophimus from Ephesus. So now they see him walking around with Paul in the city of Jerusalem. And they assume, notice it says here in verse 29, they suppose, they assume that Paul actually took Trophimus, the Greek, into the sacred precincts of the temple area. Now Paul never would have done that. This is one of those made up lies that they tell. Let me just uh, point out to you how this would have worked. If you look at a picture of the temple here, um, see this wall right here? That is called the Soreg. S-O-R-E-G. And it goes all the way around the temple. 
This is an outer wall <clears throat> with gates. According to this model based on the archaeological information, historical information that we have of the temple. The Sorig wall right here, this was the uh, court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come in here. They could walk around. They could circulate. They could not pass this wall, this Sorig wall. And all the way around this wall, there were these uh, placards that were put up. Just to give you a, kind of a closer picture of the wall here. And all the way around this wall, there were these signs uh, carved in, in stone that warned the Gentiles, do not go past this wall. If you go past this wall, you only have yourself to blame for your death. And the Romans, this is one of the few exceptions that they allowed the Jews to carry out capital punishment. If a Gentile walked inside that wall and got inside this area right in here, or especially if they went inside this area, but if they went past these gates here and inside that inner area, then they allowed the Jews to execute that offender. Even if that Gentile was a Roman citizen, the, the Roman law would allow the Jews to execute him. So this is, uh, they've actually, archaeology has actually uncovered two of these plaques. And this is one of them that uh, was uh, on the Sorg wall. And apparently the letters in carbon here were, were originally in red. They had red paint on them, so they really stood out. But this is what it said. Foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So that's that was the threat. That was the danger. Paul is not going to risk the life of one of his beloved fellow believers, Trophimus, by having him go past this wall into the inner sanctum of the temple. Paul would never have done that. And Luke uh, appeals to that when he says in verse 29, they suppose that Paul had taken him inside the temple uh, precincts. So that simply was a false assumption. And uh, again, I think uh, these uh, Jews from Asia you know, had probably got their information from some false report that they did not investigate. They weren't concerned about finding the facts. They probably got their degree in the school of journalism that a lot of it today doesn't seem to care about the facts. They're just going to report what they think might have happened. That's exactly what's going on with Paul here. This whole mess is based on false assumptions and errors and lies. But they don't care. See, it's all about getting rid of Paul. Doesn't matter what the facts say. It's kind of the old saying, don't confuse me with the, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the facts. That's where they're at. They don't care about the truth. They just want to get rid of Trump. I mean, they want to get rid of Paul. So. But really, the, the sad reality is that a lot of the, the, the uh, people that are stirring up viciousness, even today, really don't care about certain facts. They just want to uh, accomplish their, their plans to disrupt uh, what's going on. Again, the, uh, the Sorg wall was about five feet high. It separated the court of Gentiles from all the inner courts. If I can go back. So again, uh, the Jew who wanted to uh, go into the temple precinct would go through these gates right here. This is where the, uh, the beggar was located in Acts chapter 3. It's called Beautiful Gate. This is probably the gate that was made out of that renowned Corinthian bronze. Beautiful. Very expensive. The most prized gate of all of them. Uh, but they would uh, go through those gates and they would go 
they would go into the um, court of the women. This is where the women could go into this court. And you see this other gate right here. And the men could go through that gate into a courtyard of Israel where the men could actually get a little bit closer. And then the courtyard of the priests would be all that area around the actual temple itself. So again, these accusations that Paul brought Trophimus into the temple are totally unfounded. These accusations, though they were false, effectively sent the mob into a feeding frenzy and Paul was going to be the feast of the day. So what happens? In verse 30, we have the lynching mob. Then all the city was provoked. Verse 30, And the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. So all the city was provoked and rushed together. So here's a a zeal based on false information. It's like Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 2. For I testify about them as Jewish brothers. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. There's a passion without truth. And that can often become a deadly thing as we're seeing it within our own culture today. Emotional outrage fueled by distortions of the facts. So the whole city bought into it. The whole city was provoked and ran out. They're all buying into this false narrative. So they rush out and they grab hold of Paul They drag him out of the temple. And uh, he was probably... I keep hitting the wrong button. He's probably in the courtyard of the women. Why would he be there? Because see this building? This part of the uh, courtyard? Right there on the... uh, That would be the southeast corner of the temple area. That was the room where the Nazarites would appear when they would consummate their vow. So this is kind of the hall or the room of the Nazarites. So they would have gone there. He would have gone there with these four men and they would have talked to one of the priests there and informed them and notified them that the days of their purification were being completed. And so... Uh, They wanted to set up the next step for the consummation. So they saw Paul there with these people. The Asian Jews didn't know the four Christian brothers, but he saw him with them and just assumed that he was bringing Greeks in there. Okay, Inside the actual sacred precincts. So they drag him out of the temple, probably out into the courtyard of the Gentiles, that outer area possibly getting ready to take him outside to stone him. And it says the temple doors were shut. And again, this would be the doors, the gates going into the courtyard of the women. They immediately would have shut those doors to protect the inner sanctum from riots and any bloodletting which would defile it. So they would have shut those gates, maybe the inner gates as well, and they rushed and they dragged Paul out. And it, notice it says uh, in verse 31 that they were seeking to kill him. So they're probably on their way out of the city, I would guess. Somewhere between the courtyard of the Gentiles and, and outside the city compound or the, the wall of the temple. And uh, they, they want to do him in. Their, their hatred is at a rage level. No mercy, only death. And all this is based on false information. Paul was about to follow in the steps of Stephen. And the irony, of course, is that Paul was there holding the coats for the people that stoned Stephen. You know, he had not been converted at that point. And yet, it looks like he's about to go down the very same martyrdom path that Stephen went down. they could kill a Gentile immediately, probably, or somewhere along, out in that area. But obviously, 
Paul would be guilty of bringing a Gentile into the court. So the way it all works out is that these Jews, now the whole city is engaging in vigilante justice and civil unrest. So at this point, Paul would have been murdered. He would have been put to death. Sadly, when government, when law and order ceases to exist, you find chaos, you find anarchy, you find mob rule. Sound familiar? But in the providence of God, since we've been focusing on providence, the Romans come to the rescue. In verse 31 and following, starting in verse 31, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, probably chained to two soldiers. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. Okay, at this point, uh, we find that uh, the Romans now come down and rescue uh, the Apostle Paul. Now, to, to remind you again, this is the, uh, the temple compound area. Uh, Herod the Great rebuilt this from, I think, 19 B.C. to 9 B.C. And while he was rebuilding and adding and embellishing the temple compound area, he also built the uh, fortress of Antonio. And this basically became the barracks for the Romans who were there uh, to keep law and order in Jerusalem. So the main part of the building is about 50 feet high and then these four turrets on each of the four corners goes up to about 100 feet tall. So from that vantage point, the, uh, the watchman who could keep eye on all of Jerusalem and inside the temple precinct and even somewhat into the temple area because they're elevated so high, they would keep their eyes on everything. And if there was ever a commotion or, or something like that breaking out, then they would rush down because the job of the Roman soldiers was to keep the order. That's job number one. And then gather facts afterwards. But they were to keep the order. Now this Antonio Fortress, again, was built by Herod the Great on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. It was named in honor of his patron Mark Antony. Probably familiar with him. And uh, this normally housed around 600 Roman soldiers. And they were always on the lookout for trouble and they would respond quickly to any public disorder that they saw. So notice we find uh, in verse 31 that the commander of the Roman cohort received a report that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now the commander, that word is kiliarch and it refers to a leader of a thousand. So he, he kind of was like a major or a colonel today in the military. And he took two, he took centurions with him. Now, a centurion was over a hundred soldiers. So it's in the plural. So he took at least two centurions. That would be at least 200 soldiers with him. So they're, they're coming down. They are armed from, you know, teeth to feet. So they're going to go down there and figure out what the problem is and stop the uh, confusion and all the commotion. When they arrived with all their weapons, obviously the Jews see this, this uh, big rank of Roman soldiers running at them, so they immediately stop uh, beating Paul. They deliver him over to him because they don't want to be arrested. If they get arrested too then they're going to be in deep trouble and they're going to pay a price for being arrested themselves. So they're very quick to, 
to stop beating Paul and, and let the Romans do it. They don't want him, but they want to kill Paul. But I mean, you're up against Roman soldiers. What, what are you going to do? So the Roman soldiers come in. They take possession of the Apostle Paul. And uh, the Jews didn't want him to be arrested again. Uh, but uh, again, the Roman soldiers are there to protect the, the order of things. I kind of wonder if the if the riotous Jews ever tried to defund the Roman police. I could imagine they might try to. The commander had uh, had Paul arrested again with two chains, took him into protective custody, basically saved his life. And Paul was taken to the barracks. We're told that he was actually had to be carried to the barracks. Uh, because the uproar was so out of control that they felt like in verse 35, when they got to the stairs leading up into the fortress, well, you can see the, the well, you can't see the stairs there so much, but here's a picture of the stairs, possibly something like this. They were carrying Paul up. When they got to the stairs, they had to carry him up there because the pressing in of the Jewish mob, the crowd was so intense that for some reason they felt like they needed to carry him up. And he's going to stop there. And in the next passage, we're going to see where he asked permission to preach or to speak to his fellow countrymen. And that's going to take us into Acts 22 where his sermon is actually recorded for us. That's very interesting. But they, uh, they take him into protective custody. And all the while... The mob in verse 36, the multitude of the people keep following them, shouting out, away with him. Now, that should ring a bell for uh, to, in your own ears because it wasn't but a few decades earlier that the Jews were shouting out the very same thing at the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Away with him. Now by that, they weren't meaning just go lock him up inside. They mean executing, putting to death. That's what they mean by that. That's what they were wanting. Okay, well let's, let's stop and think about this passage for a moment. The first application of this in my mind is just the reiteration that the world hates us. The world hates the church. I'm not sure how the Jewish believers reacted to Paul's desire to participate in um, helping these four Jewish believers consummate their vow. I think it would have helped their understanding of the Apostle Paul. We don't know. Luke doesn't record anything about it. Luke kind of leaves us in the dark. But the Christian Jews were not the problem here. These are the Jews from Asia the unbelieving, unregenerate Jews from Asia that had come to Jerusalem. They are the ones that were stirring up the rage and Paul's actions to pay for the vows and the expenses was overlooked and it had zero effect upon these unbelieving Jews. If they knew about what he was doing, they, they don't show any indication of being softened by it. Some of their false accusations being somewhat answered. No, no evidence at all. They don't care. They feel that Paul is a threat. And in their mind, the only solution is to kill him. Get rid of him. So these unbelieving Jews have believed the, uh, all the false reports about him desecrating the temple with Greeks. And they formed a mob and they lynched the Apostle Paul. They rushed upon him, dragged him out of the temple, shut the doors, started beating him. And I think what we learned from this is that though we live in America and we have had the blessing of religious liberty for, for a long, long time, don't think that the world will ever treat us fairly if it, if it can treat us unfairly. There is a built-in hostility to the Gospel of Jesus Christ found in the world. Remember the words of our Lord when He said in John 15, if the world hates you, 
you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So we should just understand that. I mean, I don't know where our own society is going forward at this point in time, but it's, uh, it's not in the direction any, any of us probably would, would like to see in terms of just the way the world reacts to the church. In the world, the world has no place for God. And uh, sadly, the violence in some places is starting to increase against the church. Uh, two weekends ago, on July the 11th, 11th or 12th, there was a 250-year-old church that was burned to the ground in California. One of five churches attacked within 48 hours. In Florida, a 23-year-old arsonist crashed into the sanctuary of a Catholic church while congregants were praying and then set, the, set fire to the building. A historically black church, Calvary Baptist in San Diego, watched its children's ministry burn to the ground. And Black Lives Matter from the organization, not just the phrase, we all believe that black lives matter, all lives matter, but the organization, the leaders of that organization boast of being trained Marxists and they note that Marxism has no place for God. We shouldn't be surprised. On July 18th, last weekend, at Grace Covenant Church in Chantilly, Virginia, a man entered a Saturday Bible study and stabbed the pastor leading the class and another man in the Bible study. The world doesn't like us. The world wants to shut us up if they can. So one of the things we get from this passage, we learn from it, is that certainly in the first century, the world did not like Christianity. They did not like Christians. And they tried to silence them as much as they could. Try to keep them confined and squelched up and limited. And, and, and attack them. Obviously, even the Roman government is going to turn against the church and bring about horrendous persecution later on. But the world doesn't like it. Never has, never will. And again, we've been blessed in America by God's common grace. But uh, we need to continue to pray for God's protection. The second thing we learn from this is not only does the world hate us, the world will lie about us. They don't care. Satan is the God of this world. And, and as Jesus said in John 8, that the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the world doesn't have any qualms about lying about us. Lying about what we believe. What we teach. And, and attributing to us the worst motives possible. They will accuse us of bringing our unclean, defiled, trophimus of God's truth into their religious temples of power. That's what they'll do the same thing. Just with Paul. Well look, he brought this unclean defiling Gentile into our sacred holes. Well, Christians are bringing their unclean, defiled truth and gospel into our society, into our culture. Very similar type of lie. And they have no problem saying that about us. The world doesn't care about the truth. It only cares about its power and its ability to suppress religion, especially Christianity. Like the Jews in Jerusalem, the world will make up lives if it will help to accomplish their end to get rid of God. That's the end game. Some of the lies that are being told about the church today, about Christians, are one is that we're racist and xenophobic. 
And yet we send the Gospel around the world to every nation, tongue, and tribe. We love all people. doesn't matter what their skin color is or their, their race is. We love all people. And yet they will accuse us of that. And it's, that is not right. But that's how they stir up the mob that doesn't care about the facts. They just care about getting rid of us because we're a threat to their power. Some will accuse us of being homophobic because we oppose the LB, LGBTQ uh, lifestyle. But we don't hate homosexuals. We should love them as much as we love any other sinner. They need the Gospel. We should love them enough to take the Gospel to them. But they will accuse us of these kinds of labels that are not accurate. They'll say, well, Christians are Science deniers because they believe in creation, not evolution. Or they believe in a worldwide flood with Noah in a boat. Or they'll say because they believe in miracles or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of which are are anti-science. So Christians and Christianity, we're, we're science deniers. I think it was back in March that the New York Times had an article and it basically said that the COVID pandemic is the fault of Christians because we were anti-science. So again, this is one of the lies that's peddled about us from the world. They don't care about the truth. Anything, throwing mud, anything that will stick. They say we're anti-women because we oppose abortion. And yet, all lives matter, including babies' lives matter, right? We're not anti-women in that regard. Now, we're, we're against anti-sin. I mean, we're against sin. We're against abortion because you're killing innocent life. But praise God for the Gospel that there is forgiveness and healing for, for that, even if if a woman has engaged in it, but they say, well, we're anti-women. We're very pro-women. They say we're anti-justice because we disagree with a lot of the social justice that's going on today because we aren't woke enough. Although a lot of churches are becoming woke and agree with the, we don't agree with the accusations that everybody, really all whites, especially Christian whites or systemic racists are guilty of white fragility. That is basically we're so insecure we're unwilling to admit that we're racist, but we're all racist. We're, it's systemic in us and, and we can't help it. I mean, if you read some of the stuff that's going on out there, I don't think that's biblical. And the church needs to quit letting the culture define justice and let God define justice in the Scriptures. They also say that uh, we're promote a religion of hate and narrow-minded bigots because we believe that Christ is the only way. Well, it's not a religion of hate. It's a religion of good news. It's a religion of, a, of the love of God that sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, that's a religion of hate. We're just narrow-minded bigots. Because we think that Christ is the only way to heaven. Well, let God be true, though every man be a liar. They will accuse us of being hypocrites because at least we're honest enough to say that we're sinners too and we fall short too. And there's a measure of that in all of us and we're seeking God's grace to to be godly and consistent in our walk with the Lord. But they'll just as a blanket, well, you Christians are all hypocrites. So these are some of the things that they don't care about the facts. They don't care about the truth. All they want to do is to get rid of us. They want to silence us. They want to do away with our influence. They want to get rid of God. So from this passage, we learn that not only does the world hate us, the world has no qualms about lying about us either. And finally, I think we can learn from this passage is that civil government is established by God 
as a means of common grace. God established and created civil government. And that civil government, if you read Romans 13 and other places like that, is designed to promote good within our society. The Romans rescued Paul from the Jews. In this case, the Roman government did what they should have done to keep the order. Paul had been falsely accused, falsely arrested, falsely beaten, and it was wrong. There's no justice in that at all. The Romans came down and rescued him. They did what they should have done. Because civil government has one of its primarily uh, uh, purposes is to protect the citizens from unlawful activity. We should thank God when law and order is upheld, even when it's unbelievers that are doing it. This is why it's insane for these groups to want to defund the police. I do not understand that. Now, if there's bad apples in the police force, and there are some, then they need to be get, they need to get get rid of them. Obviously, if there's injustice, that needs to be addressed, right? I mean, we're all for that, but to defund the police, to allow anarchy to overtake law and order, is insanity. God established civil order and government to prevent that from happening. If you do away with it, then you're going to see what's happening in some of these liberal cities just continue to spread throughout our nation. Again, good government is a blessing of God's common grace. We see it here. Praise God for the Romans. Now, they're going to, they're going to eventually do a flip and start persecuting the church later on. But here, they're, they're doing good. Good laws and good leaders can help stem the wickedness of the world. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people in Proverbs 14. And by the way, this is why you and I, who hold dual citizenships, we have a citizenship in heaven by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ, but if you're a citizen of this country, you have a citizenship and you have rights and obligations to that citizenship. That means every Christian needs to vote. We need to put into office people who will preserve law and order and hopefully promote biblical values. Christ said very clearly, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. We have two responsibilities. To God, first and foremost, but also to Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, our Caesar is a constitution. And ultimately, we are to render unto it what it asks of us. Which means that we are a representative government. And we need to elect those who will represent us and further our values, right? And if we do not do it, then we should not complain when the evil triumph and take over, and all this is under God's providence, I understand. But we shouldn't complain if, if the persecution turns all the more um, evil against us. I think this is one of the ways that we as Christians who are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves can do that. How do I love my neighbor? One of the things I can do is by trying to get laws passed that will protect my neighbor's property and my neighbor's rights and give them the ability to live without the fear of threat or invasion so that good laws and good government is one way that I can love my neighbor because that will be, be good for them if our government is a good government, even under God's common grace, even with unbelievers thrown in there, it can still be a good government rather than an evil government. I can love my neighbor if I help to encourage that process along. So I think we all need to be voting. Good government promotes the common good. 
It protects all of our citizens. It should, all of our citizens. And I know there's a lot of, because of all the racial problems that are going on, but good government should protect all of our citizens, right? No, it should promote justice that is fair to all of our citizens. And if there's problems, then they need to be addressed. Absolutely. But whatever opposes or destroys our society and the lives of other people needs to be opposed. If we do not, then we begin to look more and more like California. Talking about you know, in terms of Oklahoma, we begin to look more like California that has suspended church services, limited the number, or prohibited singing. They've got a lot worse out there. By the way, I don't know if y'all have seen uh, on Friday, John MacArthur posted on one of his blogs a very long, you ought to go read it, a very long article which basically the title is Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. And his church, I think, has been shut down for several months now. I mean, they have not been allowed to to me. I'm not sure of all the details on that. But John MacArthur has finally raised the banner that that is going to stop at his church. That all the government restrictions saying that they can only meet, so many people can meet, or when you meet you cannot sing, or you cannot meet at all. He says they have no right to tell the church how to worship God or practice their faith. And he really borrows from what Abraham Kuyper, one of the theologians I really appreciate, who developed this concept of of sphere sovereignty. That God has established and created three institutions. Government, the church, and the family. And each of those institutions has sovereignty in ruling within itself. So the government has no right to sovereignly rule over the church. Church shouldn't do that to the government either, but they're separate and distinct spheres of sovereignty. And MacArthur drove home the point that Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar. And he laid down the, the bugle call, if you will, that uh, they were not going to abide by the government's restrictions on their worship anymore. That they were going to engage in civil disobedience on the rulings that prohibit their obedience to God because they are bound to worship and serve God, not Caesar. And he also called for all the other churches to follow him. So it's a very brave and courageous thing that, uh, that he has done. And I pray for God's blessing and protection. And, and that's in light of the COVID issue. I mean, obviously they're... They will probably, I would assume, use common sense things to protect. But when the government says you cannot meet on Sundays or you have to limit your 4,000, I think his church holds 4,000 people to 100 or whatever it is, and then you can't sing when you get together, he said, uh-uh, that, that's, that's not right. He doesn't really even argue from the First Amendment. Because, but he does say the First Amendment is based on our God-given rights to worship God. And he's appealing to those God-given rights that we need to be obedient to God rather than to man if they contradict. In Nevada, the Supreme Court has just ruled on the Friday that Nevada can impose tighter virus limits on churches and limit them to 50 worshipers, but you don't have to do that in casinos. That's, an, that's a Supreme Court of the United States ruling about Nevada. So churches are going to have to decide who do you obey? Ultimately, of course, we need God's grace. But I think as if this trend increases, it's going to spread more and more throughout, throughout our country. A couple of years ago, I read a massive biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German 
Lutheran pastor in Germany during the World War II and the Nazis were coming in and slaughtering the Jews and doing all the other things that they were doing. And Bonhoeffer stood up against that. What they were doing to the Jewish people, he stood up against that. He was eventually arrested, thrown in prison. And two weeks before the Allies came and rescued the city that he was in, delivered them, they, uh, they executed him, so he died. But in some of his writings, facing the atrocities, the evil that was going on, perpetrated by the German government, he said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And he challenged all those to obey God. When man tells us to disobey God, we obey God rather than man. Now, bottom line, good government cannot fix the problems of the human heart. Let me back up from hit that in conclusion. Let me just say that our founding fathers believed that in order for there to be religious liberty to preach the gospel of liberty, we must have civil liberty. That's really what, what we're losing now in America is civil liberty. Without civil civil liberty, we don't have the religious liberty to preach the gospel of liberty. We have to, we'll have to go underground, which God wills it, so be it. Reverend John Witherspoon said, there is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty preserved entire. So as citizens of America, I think we have a voice and we need to to use that voice by God's grace. But ultimately, good government ain't going to solve the problems of the world or our country. Because the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And the problem of the heart is sin. And only Jesus Christ can forgive our sin and change our hearts. There's enough sin and guilt and evil in all of us. Unbelievers are full of it. Christians still wrestle with it. There's none righteous, no, not one. Let us not kid ourselves that we're holy and righteous and innocent in everything we do. We need to repent of our sins as well. But the blood of Christ redeems us. The blood of Christ forgives us. The blood of Christ alone washes away our sins when we repent and believe in Him. And when we are redeemed, we are placed in the body of Christ where there's no longer any racial boundaries. No longer Jew or Greek. No longer black or white. No longer racial distinctions within the body of Christ. But rather we forgive one another. And we love one another. And we look upon one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God. That's what we do as Christians within the church. And that's the answer. It's the grace of God through Jesus Christ to save sinners, to change our hearts, and bring us into that relationship with love, of love with those who may be way different than we are in all kinds of areas. Well, finally, in the midst of all this chaos that Paul is going through, I think that's the third time I've said finally. In the midst of all the chaos and threats, Paul had his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because as they are dragging him, they've been beating him bad. The Romans rescued him. They're dragging him now up the stairs and he stops them. And he says, hey, can I address my people? And they give him permission and he's going to preach the Gospel to them. That's where he's headed. Because that's where his eyes are. It's ultimately on Jesus Christ. And that's where our eyes need to be as well. As we go forward in these troubling days where persecution is on the rise, let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and bear witness to His Gospel, which is the only solution for the heart problem of man. So may God lead us, empower us, and use us for His glory. Well, let's, let's close in a word of prayer.
Our Father, we do uh, thank You, Lord, for this passage that seems so relevant to what's going on within our own culture. And Lord, we just pray that You would use the church in the midst of this world of darkness to be the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we are powerless to make any changes. We look to You, Lord, because only You can change the heart of a sinner. But Lord, You use us in taking that good news to those who need to hear it. So protect Your people. Lord, use us. Heal our land, O God. Forgive us all of our many, many sins. And we pray for America with all the the racial tensions and all the strife and all the rioting that's going on. O God, we need Your mercy. We need Your love. We need Your intervention, O God that You would heal our hearts, that we might uh, live in peace and harmony with one another, that the evils that exist might be properly addressed and dealt with. So Father, we look to You for Your grace and most importantly, send a revival, dear Lord. Save sinners. Turn our hearts to You. Oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.